Conan and Friends, a fantasy pulp fiction audiobook podcast. Voice characterizations and sound design by Audiodrama.ai. Conan by Robert E. Howard. Episode 3 The Scarlet Citadel. Part 2. But when he came out into the broad corridor, he was no longer aware of any presence, visible or invisible. Down it he went, momentarily expecting fanged and taloned fiends to leap at him from the darkness. The tunnels were not silent. From the bowels of the earth in all directions came sounds that did not belong in a sane world. There were titterings, squeals of demoniac mirth, Long shuddering howls, and once the unmistakable squalling laughter of a hyena ended awfully in human words of shrieking blasphemy. He heard the pad of stealthy feet, and in the mouths of the tunnels caught glimpses of shadowy forms, monstrous and abnormal in outline. It was as if he had wandered into hell, a hell of Sotholanti's making, but the shadowy things did not come into the great corridor though he distinctly heard the greedy sucking in of slavering lips and felt the burning glare of hungry eyes. And presently he knew why. A slithering sound behind him electrified him, and he leapt to the darkness of a nearby tunnel, shaking out his torch. Down the corridor he heard the great serpent crawling, sluggish from its recent grisly meal. From his very side something whimpered in fear and slunk away in the darkness. Evidently the main corridor was the great snake's hunting ground, and the other monsters gave it room. To Conan, the serpent was the least horror of them. He almost felt a kinship with it when he remembered the weeping, tittering obscenity and the dripping, mouthing thing that came out of the well. At least it was of earthly matter. It was a crawling death, but it threatened only physical extinction, whereas these other horrors menaced mind and soul as well. After it had passed on down the corridor, he followed, at what he hoped was a safe distance, blowing his torch into flame again. He had not gone far when he heard a low moan that seemed to emanate from the black entrance of a tunnel nearby. Caution warned him on, but curiosity drove him to the tunnel, holding high the torch that was now little more than a stump. He was braced for the sight of anything, yet what he saw was what he had least expected. He was looking into a broad cell, and a space of this was caged off, with closely set bars extending from floor to ceiling, set firmly in the stone. Within these bars lay a figure, which, as he approached, he saw was either a man, or the exact likeness of a man, twined and bound about with the tendrils of a thick vine, which seemed to grow through the solid stone of the floor. It was covered with strangely pointed leaves and crimson blossoms, not the satiny red of natural petals, but a livid, unnatural crimson, like a perversity of flower life. Its clinging, pliant branches wound about the man's naked body and limbs, seeming to caress his shrinking flesh with lustful, avid kisses. One great blossom hovered exactly over his mouth. A low, bestial moaning drooled from the loose lips. The head rolled as if in unbearable agony, and the eyes looked full at Conan, but there was no light of intelligence in them. They were blank, glassy, the eyes of an idiot, now the great crimson blossom dipped and pressed its petals over the writhing lips. The limbs of the wretch twisted in anguish. The tendrils of the plant quivered as if in ecstasy, vibrating their full, snaky lengths. Waves of changing hues surged over them. Their color grew deeper, more venomous. 
Conan did not understand what he saw, but he knew that he looked on horror of some kind, man or demon. The suffering of the captive touched Conan's wayward and impulsive heart. He sought for entrance and found a grill-like door in the bars, fastened with a heavy lock, for which he found a key among the keys he carried and entered. Instantly the petals of the livid blossom spread like the hood of a cobra, the tendrils reared menacingly, and the whole plant shook and swayed toward him. Here was no blind growth of natural vegetation. Conan sensed a malignant intelligence. The plant could see him, and he felt its hate emanate from it in almost tangible waves. Stepping warily nearer, he marked the root stem, a repulsively supple stalk thicker than his thigh, and even as the long tendrils arched toward him with a rattle of leaves and hiss, he swung his sword and cut through the stem with a single stroke. Instantly the wretch in its clutches was thrown violently aside as the great vine lashed and knotted like a beheaded serpent, rolling into a huge irregular ball. The tendrils thrashed and writhed, the leaves shook and rattled like castanets, and the petals opened and closed convulsively. Then the whole length straightened out limply, the vivid colors paled and dimmed, a reeking white liquid oozed from the severed stump. Conan stared spellbound. Then a sound brought him round, sword lifted. The freed man was on his feet, surveying him. Conan gaped in wonder. No longer were the eyes in the worn face expressionless. Dark and meditative, they were alive with intelligence, and the expression of imbecility had dropped from the face like a mask. The head was narrow and well-formed, with a high, splendid forehead. The whole build of the man was aristocratic, evident no less in his tall, slender frame than in his small, trim feet and hands. His first words were strange and startling. What year is this? he asked, speaking Cothic. Today is the tenth day of the month. You look of the year of the gazelle, answered Conan. Yakul and Ishtar, murmured the stranger. Ten years? He drew a hand across his brow, shaking his head as if to clear his brain of cobwebs. All is dim yet. After a ten-year emptiness, the mind cannot be expected to begin functioning clearly at once. Who are you? Conan, once of Cimmeria, now king of Aquilonia. The other's eyes showed surprise. Indeed, and Namedides. I strangled him on his throne the night I took the royal city, answered Conan. A certain naivete in the king's reply twitched the stranger's lips. Pardon, your majesty. I should have thanked you for the service you have done me. I am like a man woken suddenly from sleep deeper than death and shot with nightmares of agony more fierce than hell. But I understand that you delivered me. Tell me, why did you cut the stem of the plant, Yorthga, instead of tearing it up by the roots? Because I learned long ago to avoid touching with my flesh that which I do not understand, answered the Cimmerian. Well for you, said the stranger. Had you been able to tear it up, you might have found things clinging to the roots against which not even your sword would prevail. Yothka's roots are set in hell. But who are you? demanded Conan. Men call me Peleus. What? cried the king. Peleus the sorcerer, Sothel and his rival, who vanished from the earth ten years ago. Not entirely from the earth, answered Peleus with a wry smile. Sotha preferred to keep me alive, in shackles more grim than rusted iron. He pent me in here with this devil flower whose seeds drifted down through the black cosmos from Yag the Accursed, and found fertile field only in the maggot-writhing corruption that seized on the floors of hell. 
I could not remember my sorcery and the words and symbols of my power, with that cursed thing gripping me and drinking my soul with its loathsome caresses. It sucked the contents of my mind day and night, leaving my brain as empty as a broken wine jug. Ten years. Ishter preservers. Conan found no reply, but stood holding the stump of the torch and trailing his great sword. Surely the man was mad, yet there was no madness in the dark eyes that rested so calmly on him. Tell me, is the black wizard in Korshamish? But no, you need not reply. My powers begin to wake, and I sense in your mind a great battle and a king, trapped by treachery. And I see Tothalanti riding hard for the Tiber with Strabonus and the king of Ofa. So much the better. My art is too frail from the long slumber to face Sotha yet. I need time to recruit my strength, to assemble my powers. Let us go forth from these pits. Conan jangled his keys discouragedly. The grill to the outer door is made fast by a bolt, which can be worked only from the outside. Is there no other exit from these tunnels? Only one, which neither of us would care to use, seeing that it goes down and not up, laughed Phileas. But no matter... Let us see to the grill. He moved toward the corridor with uncertain steps, as of long, unused limbs, which gradually became more sure. As he followed, Conan remarked uneasily, There is a cursed big snake creeping about this tunnel. Let us be wary lest we step into his mouth. I remember him of old, answered Phileas grimly, the more as I was forced to watch, while ten of my acolytes were fed to him. He is Sather, the old one chiefest of Sotha's pets. Did Sotha dig these pits for no other reason than to house his cursed monstrosities? asked Conan. He did not dig them. When the city was founded three thousand years ago, there were ruins of an earlier city on and about this hill, King Cossus V. The founder built his palace on the hill, and digging cellars beneath it came upon a walled-up doorway, which he broke into and discovered the pits, which were about as we see them now. But his grand vizier came to such a grisly end in them that Cossus, in a fright, walled up the entrance again. He said the vizier fell into a well, but he had the cellars filled in and later abandoned the palace itself and built himself another in the suburbs, from which he fled in a panic on discovering some black mould scattered on the marble floor of his palace one morning. He then departed with his whole court to the eastern corner of the kingdom and built a new city. The palace on the hill was not used and fell into ruins. When Akutho one revived the lost glories of Korshamish, he built a fortress there. It remained for Tsothalanti to rear the scarlet citadel and open the way to the pits again. Whatever fate overtook the grand vizier of Cossus, Sotha avoided it. He fell into no well, though he did descend into a well he found, and came out with a strange expression which has not since left his eyes. I have seen that well, but I do not care to seek in it for wisdom. I am a sorcerer, and older than men reckon, but I am human. As for Tutha, men say that a dancing girl of Shadizar slept too near the pre-human ruins on Dagoth Hill and woke in the grip of a black demon. From that unholy union was, spawned an accursed hybrid men called Sothalanti. Conan cried out sharply and recoiled, thrusting his companion back. Before them rose the great shimmering white form of Sutha, an ageless hate in its eyes. Conan tensed himself for one mad berserker onslaught, to thrust the glowing faggot into that fiendish countenance and throw his life into the ripping sword stroke. But the snake was not looking at him.
It was glaring over his shoulder at the man called Felias, who stood with his arms folded, smiling, and in the great cold yellow eyes slowly, the hate died out in a glitter of pure fear. The only time Conan ever saw such an expression in a reptile's eyes. With a swirling rush like the sweep of a strong wind, the great snake was gone. What did he see to frighten him? asked Conan, eyeing his companion uneasily. The scaled people see what escapes the mortal eye, answered Phileas cryptically. You see my fleshly guise, he saw my naked soul. An icy trickle disturbed Conan's spine, and he wondered if, after all, Peleus were a man, or merely another demon of the pits in a mask of humanity. He contemplated the advisability of driving his sword through his companion's back without further hesitation. But while he pondered, they came to the steel grill, etched blackly in the torches beyond, and the body of Shukalai still slumped against the bars in a curdled welter of crimson. Phileus laughed, and his laugh was not pleasant to hear. By the ivory hips of Ishtar, who is our doorman, no, it is no less than the noble Shukali who hanged my young men by their feet and skinned them with squeals of laughter. You sleep, Shukali? Why do you lie so stiffly, with your fat belly sunk in like a dress pig's? He is dead, muttered Conan, ill at ease to hear these wild words. Dead or alive, laughed Phileas, he shall open the door for us. He clapped his hands sharply and cried, Rise! Shukeli, rise from hell and rise from the bloody floor and open the door for your masters. Rise, I say. An awful groan reverberated through the vaults. Conan's hair stood on end, and he felt clammy sweat bead his hide, for the body of Shukeli stirred and moved with infantile gropings of the fat hands. The laughter of Peleus was merciless as a flint hatchet, as the form of the eunuch reeled upright, clutching at the bars of the grill. Conan, glaring at him, felt his blood turn to ice, and the marrow of his bones to water. Pashukali's wide-open eyes were glassy and empty, and from the great gash in his belly, his entrails hung limply to the floor. The eunuch's feet stumbled among his entrails as he worked the bolt, moving like a brainless automaton. When he had first stirred, Conan had thought that by some incredible chance the eunuch was alive, but the man was dead, had been dead for hours. Phileas sauntered through the opened grill, and Conan crowded through behind him, sweat pouring from his body, shrinking away from the awful shape that slumped on sagging legs against the grate it held open. Phileas passed on without a backward glance, and Conan followed him in the grip of nightmare and nausea. He had not taken half a dozen strides when a sodden thud brought him round. Shukali's corpse lay limply at the foot of the grill. His task is done, and hell gapes for him again, remarked Phileas pleasantly, politely affecting not to notice the strong shudder which shook Conan's mighty frame. He led the way up the long stairs and through the brass skull-crowned door at the top. Conan gripped his sword, expecting a rush of slaves, but silence gripped the citadel. They passed through the black corridor and came into that in which the censers swung, billowing forth their everlasting incense. Still they saw no one. The slaves and soldiers are quartered in another part of the citadel, remarked Phileas. Tonight, their master being away, they doubtless lie drunk on wine or lotus juice. Conan glanced through an arched golden-silled window that let out upon a broad balcony and swore in surprise to see the dark blue star-flecked sky. It had been shortly after sunrise when he was thrown into the pits.
Now it was past midnight. He could scarcely realize he had been so long underground. He was suddenly aware of thirst and a ravenous appetite. Pelias led the way into a gold-domed chamber, floored with silver, its lapis lazuli walls pierced by the fretted arches of many doors. With a sigh, Pelias sank onto a silken divan. Gold and silks again, he sighed. Sotha affects to be above the pleasures of the flesh, but he is half-devil. I am human despite my black arts. I love ease and good cheer. That's how Sotha trapped me. He caught me helpless with drink. Wine is a curse. By the ivory bosom of Ishtar, even as I speak of it, the traitor is here. Friend, please pour me a goblet. Hold, I forgot that you are a king. I will pour. The devil with that, growled Conan, filling a crystal goblet and proffering it to Peleus. Then, lifting the jug, he drank deeply from the mouth, echoing Peleus' sigh of satisfaction. The dog knows good wine, said Conan, wiping his mouth with the back of his hand. But by Chrome, Peleus, are we to sit here until his soldiers awake and cut our throats? No fear, answered Peleus. Would you like to see how fortune holds with Strabonus? Blue fire burned in Conan's eyes, and he gripped his sword until his knuckles showed blue. Oh, to be at sword points with him, he rumbled. Peleus lifted a great shimmering globe from an ebony table, Sotha's crystal, a childish toy but useful when there is lack of time for higher science. Look in, your majesty. He laid it on the table before Conan's eyes. The king looked into cloudy depths which deepened and expanded. Slowly, images crystallized out of mist and shadows. He was looking on a familiar landscape. Broad plains ran to a wide, winding river, beyond which the level lands ran up quickly into a maze of low hills. On the northern bank of the river stood a walled town, guarded by a moat connected at each end with the river. By Crom, ejaculated Conan. It's Sharma! The dogs besiege it! The invaders had crossed the river. Their pavilions stood in the narrow plain between the city and the hills. Their warriors swarmed about the walls, their mail gleaming palely under the moon. Arrows and stones rained on them from the towers, and they staggered back but came on again. Even as Conan cursed, the scene changed. Tall spires and gleaming domes stood up in the mist, and he looked on his own capital of Tamar, where all was confusion. He saw the steel-clad knights of Poitan, his staunchest supporters, riding out of the gate, hooted and hissed by the multitude which swarmed the streets. He saw looting and rioting and men-at-arms whose shields bore the insignia of Pelei, manning the towers and swaggering through the markets. Overall, like a phantasmal mirage, he saw the dark, triumphant face of Prince Arpello of Pelia. The images faded. So, raved Conan. My people turn on me the moment my back is turned. Not entirely, broke in Felius. They have heard that you are dead. There is no one to protect them from outer enemies and civil war, they think. Naturally, they turn to the strongest noble to avoid the horrors of anarchy. They do not trust the Boitanians, remembering former wars. But Arpello is on hand, and the strongest prince of the central provinces. When I come to Aquilonia again, he will be but a headless corpse rotting on traders' carmen. Conan ground his teeth. Yet before you can reach your capital, reminded Felius, Strabonis may be before you. At least his riders will be ravaging your kingdom. True, Conan paced the chamber like a caged lion. With the fastest horse, I could not reach Shamar before midday, 
Even there I could do no good except to die with the people when the town falls, as fall it will in a few days at most. From Shama to Tamar is five days' ride, even if you kill your horses on the road. Before I could reach my capital and raise an army, Strabonus would be hammering at the gates, because raising an army is going to be hell. All my damnable nobles will have scattered to their own cursed fiefs at the word of my death. And since the people have driven out Trosro of Poiton, there's none to keep Arpello's greedy hands off the crown and the crown treasure. He'll hand the country over to Strabonus in return for a mock throne, and as soon as Strabonus' back is turned, he'll stir up revolt. But the nobles won't support him, and it will only give Strabonus excuse for annexing the kingdom openly. Oh, crom, I mere and set. If I but had wings to fly like lightning to Tamar... Phileus, who sat tapping the jade tabletop with his fingernails, halted suddenly, and rose as with a definite purpose, beckoning Conan to follow. The king complied, sunk in moody thoughts, and Phileus led the way out of the chamber and up a flight of marble, gold-worked stairs that let out on the pinnacle of the citadel, the roof of the tallest tower. It was night, and a strong wind was blowing through the star-filled skies, stirring Conan's black mane. Far below them twinkled the lights of Korshamish, seemingly farther away than the stars above them. Thea seemed withdrawn and aloof here, one in cold, unhuman greatness with the company of the stars. There are creatures, said Phileas, not alone of earth and sea, but of air and the far reaches of the skies as well, dwelling apart, unguessed of men. Yet to him who holds the master words and signs and the knowledge underlying all, they are not malignant nor inaccessible. Watch and fear not. He lifted his hands to the skies and sounded a long, weird call that seemed to shudder endlessly out into space, dwindling and fading, yet never dying out, only receding farther and farther into some unreckoned cosmos. In the silence that followed, Conan heard a sudden beat of wings in the stars and recoiled as a huge bat-like creature alighted beside him. He saw its great calm eyes regarding him in the starlight. He saw the forty-foot spread of its giant wings. And he saw it was neither bat nor bird. Mount and ride, said Phileas. By dawn it will bring you to Tamar. By crumb, muttered Conan. Is this all a nightmare from which I shall presently awaken in my palace at Tamar? What of you? I would not leave you alone among your enemies? Be at ease regarding me, answered Phileas. At dawn the people of Korshemish will know they have a new master. Doubt not what the gods have sent you. I will meet you in the plain by Shamar. Doubtfully, Conan clambered upon the ridged back, gripping the arched neck, still convinced that he was in the grasp of a fantastic nightmare. With a great rush and thunder of titan wings, the creature took the air, and the king grew dizzy as he saw the lights of the city dwindle far below him. The sword that slays the king cuts the cords of the empire. Aquilonian proverb. The streets of Tamar swarmed with howling mobs, shaking fists and rusty pikes. It was the hour before dawn of the second day after the Battle of Shamu, and events had occurred so swiftly as to daze the mind. By means known only to Tsothalanti, word had reached Tamar of the king's death within half a dozen hours after the battle. Chaos had resulted. The barons had deserted the royal capital, galloping away to secure their castles against marauding neighbors. 
The well-knit kingdom Conan had built up seemed tottering on the edge of dissolution, and commoners and merchants trembled at the imminence of a return of the feudalistic regime. The people howled for a king to protect them against their own aristocracy, no less than foreign foes. Count Trosero, left by Conan in charge of the city, tried to reassure them, but in their unreasoning terror they remembered old civil wars, and how this same count had besieged Tamar fifteen years before. It was shouted in the streets that Trosero had betrayed the king, that he planned to plunder the city. The mercenaries began looting the quarters, dragging forth screaming merchants and terrified women. Tresero swept down on the looters, littered the streets with their corpses, drove them back into their quarter in confusion, and arrested their leaders. Still, the people rushed wildly about with brainless squawks, screaming that the Count had incited the riot for his own purposes. Prince Arpello came before the distracted council and announced himself ready to take over the government of the city until a new king could be decided upon, Conan having no son. While they debated, his agents stole subtly among the people, who snatched at a shred of royalty. The council heard the storm outside the palace windows, where the multitude roared for Arpello the rescuer. The council surrendered. Trosro at first refused the order to give up his baton of authority, but the people swarmed about him, hissing and howling, hurling stones and offal at his knights. Seeing the futility of a pitched battle in the streets with Arpello's retainers, under such conditions, Trotro hurled the baton in his rival's face, hanged the leaders of the mercenaries in the market square as his last official act, and rode out of the southern gate at the head of his fifteen hundred steel-clad knights. The gates slammed behind him, and Arpello's suave mask fell away to reveal the grim visage of the hungry wolf. With the mercenaries cut to pieces or hiding in their barracks, his were the only soldiers in Amar, sitting his warhorse in the great square. Apello proclaimed himself king of Aquilonia amid the clamor of the deluded multitude. Publius, the chancellor, who opposed this move, was thrown into prison. The merchants, who had greeted the proclamation of a king with relief, now found with consternation that the new monarch's first act was to levy a staggering tax on them. Six rich merchants, sent as a delegation of protest, were seized, their heads slashed off without ceremony. A shocked and stunned silence followed this execution. The merchants, confronted by a power they could not control with money, fell on their fat bellies and licked their oppressor's boots. The common people were not perturbed at the fate of the merchants, but they began to murmur when they found that the swaggering Pelion soldiery, pretending to maintain order, were as bad as Tyrrhenian bandits. Complaints of extortion, murder, and rape poured into Arpello, who had taken up his quarters in Publius's palace because the desperate counsellors doomed by his order were holding the royal palace against his soldiers. He had taken possession of the pleasure palace, however, and Conan's girls were dragged to his quarters. The people muttered at the sight of the royal beauties writhing in the brutal hands of the iron-clad retainers. Dark-eyed damsels of Poiton, slim black-haired wenches from Zamora, Zingara, and Harkania, Brethunian girls with tousled yellow heads, all weeping with fright and shame, unused to brutality. Night fell on a city of bewilderment and turmoil, and before midnight, word spread mysteriously in the street that the Cothians had followed up their victory and were hammering at the walls of Shamar. Somebody in Sotha's mysterious secret service had babbled, 
Fear shook the people like an earthquake, and they did not even pause to wonder at the witchcraft by which the news had been so swiftly transmitted. They stormed at Arpello's doors, demanding that he march southward and drive the enemy back over the Tiber. He might have subtly pointed out that his force was not sufficient, and that he could not raise an army until the barons recognized his claim to the crown. But he was drunk with power and laughed in their faces. A young student, Athamides, mounted a column in the market and with burning words accused Arpello of being a cat's paw for Strabonus, painting a vivid picture of existence under Cothian rule with Apello as satrap. Before he finished, the multitude was screaming with fear and howling with rage. Apello sent his soldiers to arrest the youth, but the people caught him up and fled with him, deluging the pursuing retainers with stones and dead cats. A volley of crossbow quarrels routed the mob, and a charge of horsemen littered the market with bodies, but Athamides was smuggled out of the city to plead with Trasero to retake Tamar, and march to aid Shema. Athamides found Trusero breaking his camp outside the walls, ready to march to Poitan, in the far southwestern corner of the kingdom. To the youth's urgent pleas, he answered that he had neither the force necessary to storm Tamar even with the aid of the mob inside, nor to face Strabonus. Besides, avaricious nobles would plunder Poitain behind his back while he was fighting the Cothians. With the king dead, each man must protect his own. He was riding to Putten, there to defend it as best he might against Arpello and his foreign allies. While Athamides pleaded with Trocero, the mob still raved in the city with helpless fury. Under the great tower beside the royal palace, the people swirled and milled, screaming their hate at Arpello, who stood on the turrets and laughed down at them, while his archers ranged the parapets, bolts drawn and fingers on the triggers of their arbalests. The Prince of Pelio was a broad-built man of medium height, with a dark, stern face. He was an intriguer, but he was also a fighter. Under his silken jupon with its gilt-braided skirts and jagged sleeves, glimmered burnished steel. His long black hair was curled and scented, and bound back with a cloth of silver band. But at his hip hung a broadsword, the jewelled hilt of which was worn with battles and campaigns. Fools! Owl as you will! Conan is dead and Apello is king! What if all Aquilonia were leagued against him? He had men enough to hold the mighty walls until Strabonus came up, but Aquilonia was divided against itself. Already the barons were girding themselves each to seize his neighbor's treasure. Apello had only the helpless mob to deal with. Strabonus would carve through the loose lines of the warring barons as a galley ran through foam, and until his coming, Apello had only to hold the royal capital. Fools! Apello is king! The sun was rising over the eastern towers. Out of the crimson dawn came a flying speck that grew to a bat, then to an eagle. Then all who saw screamed in amazement, for over the walls of Tamar swooped a shape such as men knew only in half-forgotten legends, and from between its titan wings sprang a human form as it roared over the great tower. Then, with a deafening thunder of wings, it was gone, and the folk blinked, wondering if they dreamed. But on the turret stood a wild, barbaric figure, half-naked, blood-stained, brandishing a great sword. And from the multitude rose a roar that rocked the towers. The king! It is the king! Apello stood transfixed. Then with a cry he drew and leapt at Conan. But 
a lion-like roar, the Cimmerian parried the whistling blade, then dropping his own sword, gripped the prince and heaved him high above his head by crotch and neck. Take your plots to hell with you, he roared, and like a sack of salt, he hurled the prince of Pelia far out to fall through empty space for a hundred and fifty feet. The people gave back as the body came hurtling down to smash on the marble pave, spattering blood and brains, and lie crushed in its splintered armor like a mangled beetle. The archers on the tower shrank back, their nerve broken. They fled, and the beleaguered councilmen sallied from the palace and hewed into them with joyous abandon. Pelian knights and men at arms sought safety in the streets, and the crowd tore them to pieces. In the streets, the fighting milled and eddied. Plumed helmets and steel caps tossed among the tousled heads and then vanished. Swords hacked madly in a heaving forest of pikes, and over all rose the roar of the mob, shouts of acclaim mingling with screams of bloodlust and howls of agony. And high above all, the naked figure of the king rocked and swayed on the dizzy battlements, mighty arms brandished, roaring with gargantuan laughter that mocked all mobs and princes, even himself. Thank you for listening. Conan and Friends is an In Shambles production. 